Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Media and Communication podcast. I'm your host, John Sullivan, from Muhlenberg College here in the thriving East Coast metropolis known as Allentown, Pennsylvania. I'm one of the co-hosts of the New Books in Media and Communication podcast, along with my colleague, Dr. Jeff Pooley. I'm excited for today's podcast because it's all about video games. I love video games. I play video games. Maybe you do, too. But today's discussion is all about the history of video games, the structure of the video game industry, and where this industry is going in the future. And to help us understand all these really important things and trends, I'm really pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Randy Nichols to the podcast. Uh, Randy is Associate Professor of English and Media Studies at Bentley University, which is in Waltham, Massachusetts. He received his PhD from the University of Oregon, and his research focuses on critical media industry studies particularly video games and also new media. He's an editor for Eludimus, hope I got that right, an online journal for video games and culture. And he's actually also the chair of the steering committee for the Union for Democratic Communications, which is an association of scholars and activists dedicated to the critical study of media. The book we're talking about today is called The Video Game Business, which despite the mysteriousness of the title, uh, actually provides a comprehensive overview of the history and current structure of the global video game market. Uh, it was published by the British Film Institute in 2014. So I'm really pleased to welcome uh, Randy Nichols. He's on the line with me now all the way from the Bay State. Randy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. Good to be here. It's so great to have you here. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this book, and but I'm really curious about where your scholarly interest in video games come from. I mean, I know why I'm interested in video games, but what got you interested in video games? For me, it was actually fairly fortuitous in that at the time I was in graduate school, I didn't really play video games all that much. And what I really wanted to write about was the notion of information labor. I can remember going in to talk to my advisor and pitching my grand theory of information labor, and my advisor quite rightly said, that's lovely, but it would be even better if you could find an example And in the way that things sometimes very rarely do, this notion of video games fell into my lap. A good friend of mine called me that same evening and was quite excited because he had been offered the chance to beta test a video game. And essentially what that meant for him was that he was going to play a video game that wasn't completed. In fact, most of what he was going to be doing was playing a broken video game and telling the game producers everything that was broken about it. But he was really excited, and we started to talk about it, and he explained to me that he had to log a certain number of hours a week. He had to play 40 hours of the game a week. He had to sign a, a uh, non-disclosure agreement. He had to file reports, and he wasn't getting paid. The only, the only benefit he got was playing this broken video game before anybody else, and he was so excited. And I remember going into my advisor the next day and saying, 
I have the example. I had the example of information labor. This guy I know is, has taken on a full-time job for no pay. And that was actually how I came in. So I have the, the sort of dubious distinction among game scholars of admitting that I wasn't much of a gamer until I, I stumbled onto the topic. <laughs> Do you remember what the game was? I'm just curious what the game was. It wasn't, it, I can't remember if it was the first or the second EverQuest. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So he was quite excited. One of the, one of the early massive multiplayer role-playing games. But isn't that just kind of an epitome of the new information economy, though? Someone gets extremely excited about committing oneself to a grueling, for, I don't care how, many, how much enjoyment you get from it, 40 hours per week is pretty grueling, and uh, to play a video game for no money. I mean, it was amazing. It, it was exactly what I wanted, had been talking about kind of from a theoretical standpoint. It was somebody who had this job that involved high amounts of knowledge. He had to understand a little bit about programming. He had to be computer literate. Um, and he was, he was doing a second full-time job. So he would come home from his daytime job in Austin, Texas, and have dinner with his wife and kids and do the family thing. And then he had to, in the rest of the week, carve out at least 40 hours and realistically, he probably played more than that. Um, but he had to, if he didn't log enough hours, he lost the honor of playing the game. Wow. And of being able to tell the manufacturer or the publisher what was wrong with it. And, exactly. Yeah. But it was quite amazing that the, you know, the, really, the only pay was to be able to see pixels before other people saw them. <laughs> so how would you say... So you said your inter- initial interest was in labor. How... How do you situate, so this whole book is about the industry writ large and all different aspects of the video game industry. How would you maybe describe your orientation to the study of video games as an industry? How would you situate your work theoretically and maybe who are some of the key influences on your work? Theoretically, I would situate myself as a critical political economist. So I really want to think about not just the way that resources are used and allocated, but also what the power structures are and what the implications of those power structures are for everybody involved. Um, having gone to the University of Oregon, I very much fall into the, the Janet Wasco School of Communication. Um, and you know, like Janet, one of the things that be, kind of served as a beginning for me was the notion of understanding the industry and using that to delve into very specific topics. Um, other, you know, other scholars that I really identify quite heavily with, uh, Bernard Miege from France, Eileen Meehan, um, that school of political economy that is maybe not so averse to also understanding the cultural side of things and the, the uh, sometimes microeconomic side of things. So what it is that games are like for players, how meaning is made from them, but how all of that is really shaped by the industrial production. Right. So in a sense, video games are one of a number of cultural products that are mass-produced, that are part of a capitalist system, and in that context, it's important to place them. Is that... That's exactly exactly it. And I, I think video games are a really useful example of this information situation and of the, the sort of problems with things like the recent turn towards the creative industries. Um, one thing that was very important to me in trying to write the book and in, in subsequent things that I've worked on was trying to remind everyone that when we talk about video games, we actually have to talk about more than the software. Uh, there's a tendency, I think particularly from the, the desire to work in the creative industries, to think about how cool it is to work in video games. And that may be true, although even on the software side, there are some problems. 
but it completely ignores what it means to actually have to produce hardware, right? In the video game consoles we purchase, those things are all produced in other places. They're all produced by people who, for the most part, will never be able to afford to buy the console, will likely never play on it, and to actually experience tremendous amount of externalities, things like health issues, um, increased uh, birth defect rates, increased likelihood of cancer. Those things have all been linked to the production of these high-resource-intensive materials, so things like your iPhone. Uh, but we tend to ignore that when we talk about video games. So when I talk to my students about their game playing, they're all, they can all identify what console they love to play on, but they don't ever think about the console itself as something that somebody actively produced as a, a set of resources that came together. And that was one of the things that was really important to me as a political economist to try and get to to make sure that we understood there's more to the industry than the games. There's more to understand about video games than whether or not they promote violence or sexism, that before we ever get to those questions of meaning, there are some real fundamental problems that occur. That's great. One of the things that I really like about the book as someone who's interested in video games is that it has a really nice, uh, the first chapter really is a really nice kind of overview of the history of the industry in a way, going back to even the earliest games. And a lot of the histories that I read of the video game industry are either focused, they, they're mostly focused on describing the games themselves, right? Mm-hmm. What they were, who made them, how that became important to some other kind of in, endeavor uh, linking it to, let's say, the Cold War or linking it to missile defense or something like that, that there was mm-hmm. some kind of connection there. But what I really like about your book is that you talk, out, talk about the, the history of the games, but then you begin to talk about how that develops into kind of a fully-fledged industry where there are products that are shipped and uh, suddenly people just discover that they can make money. Right, so... You call the the game Space War, which was invented all the way back in 1961, right? Mm-hmm. As uh, by some computer programmers looking to blow off some steam after a long day working on mainframe computers, that was the first video game. But when did something like a video game industry emerge? This is one of the things that's really interesting about video games is that unlike some other media industries, video games almost immediately convert to an industrialized status. So Space War happens in the mid-60s, and depending on which game scholar you talk to, they'll argue about whether that's the the first video game or not. Almost immediately, as soon as we begin to make computer microchips smaller, we have people trying to make video games for sale. Uh, So the people who are programming very early video games like Pong begin by programming them on mainframes and by... 1971 or 72, they're trying to sell them not just to bars, not just to arcades, but they're also selling home versions of them. So unlike something like the film industry, and think about that kind of long period from the 1890s up until, say, the 1920s or 30s, where there are a whole range of ways we use, we use film. Um, and depending on national context, the way we think about film functions very, very differently. So film in France does not take on the industrial nature as quickly as film in the U.S. Video games have about a four-year shelf life from the moment where they're this kind of experimental thing that programmers are, are using to blow off steam and also to figure out the capabilities of the machines they're on. Uh, one thing I think that's important to recognize about, 
early video game history is that it's a history of experimentation. So we have these machines that people have just invented. Nobody's quite sure what they're going to be useful for. And they're trying all sorts of things. And one of the things they try is to program video games. Space War becomes an attempt to not just allow people to have some fun on machines, but also start trying to think about the way in which they process and maneuver. From that point, though, very, very quickly, we move right into an industrialized notion of video games. And they actually sort of mirror themselves, at least in the U.S., on the Hollywood film industry. So the early game producers look at what Hollywood is doing and look at the structure of the Hollywood industry and try to pick up some things that they can take from it and to adapt them to the production of games as an industry. Yeah, you have a there's really nice uh, kind of chart in the, that first chapter where you kind of outline a series of historical time periods or epochs, uh, although epochs would suggest a huge length of time. But in fact, these are very compressed. You know, when you compare it with, let's say, film or television or some of the other legacy type of media, uh, mm-hmm. video game history is really compressed in certain ways. But you say there are certain kind of epics in video game history and that they have certain things that distinguish them from one another. Can you just say a little bit about, describe what those epics are and maybe what's different about them to your mind? One of the things, and that's actually a chart that I, I spent a lot of time trying to think through, so I'm glad that it made some sense. One of the things that happens in more traditional game histories, is so if you read things like um, Stephen Kent's history of video games, they become the sort of history of machines, and we tend to talk about them in terms of the size of the microchip. So we'll talk about like the 16-bit revolution, the, the 32-bit what I was trying to get to is to try and think about the way that the hardware changed and the way that that, that impacted. So if we think about the very first video game epic, what we see is single-purpose machines. Uh, so think about if you ever played old video games in an arcade, or if you actually if you still play video games in an arcade. Most of those arcade machines are capable of playing one video game and one video game only. And the first household machines for video games played one game and one game only. So if you, play, you bought the Pong machine in the early 1970s, it played Pong. A really significant moment in trying to advanced the games industry became trying to expand the capabilities. So the second game epic actually sees hardware and software separate. I can remember my uncle buying my family an Atari 2600 in the mid-70s. And the genius of the Atari 2600 wasn't that it was graphically incredible. It was pretty ugly by today's standards. In fact, it was almost minimalist. Uh, The games themselves were fun, but they were nowhere near as complex as things today. So it was you navigating around a screen and shooting little square-shaped bullets at your opponent. But you could change that game out. So we actually had this kind of modularity come in. As we move down those epics, we see other things happen. So the ability for game hardware to take on other media. Uh, The Sony Playstations, for example, were kind of revolutionary when they could not just play video games, but they could play CDs. And that really marks a turning point for the way we think about what the industry does, and it marks a, a turning point for the way the industry thinks about itself. Uh, and the, the kind of current epic that we're in, one of the things that happens is that not only have consoles begun to play other media, so if you're on an Xbox One or the PlayStation 4, not only can you play music and DVDs, not only can you play video games, but you actually don't have to buy video games on hardware anymore. 
You can download them from the cloud. You can get them from the internet. Um, you can transport them from one machine to another. You can also make your own media with them now. So we have the rise of players documenting their gameplay and actually making money from it. That is a fundamental change in, in a very rapid time from what the industry looked like in the 1970s. Hmm. Right. And th- one of the things that's interesting to me is that you describe about how video games kind of like migrated from the hardware to a whole constellation of software, right? So one might be tempted to assume then that it's the software that therefore is predominant in the industry itself. But even though software becomes a little bit divorced from the hardware, there's still a symbiotic relationship there, isn't there, between hardware and software in this industry? Or is that beginning to break apart? No, I think that's absolutely still true. One of the things that hardcore gamers will tell you, for example, is that there are certain games that are better to play on a particular machine than another. Uh, The capabilities of the Xbox One or the PlayStation 4 are inherently important to the way in which games themselves, many games themselves, I should say, actually come across and the way in which how enjoyable they are. So think about any time a new game is released, almost immediately one of the things that happens is people begin to point out the problems on one machine or the other. Hardware never falls out of the picture. And in fact, you can think about hardware as setting kind of the limits for what it is software can do. So the boundaries of meaning actually in some ways are set by the capabilities of the machine. So if you want to talk about from a cultural standpoint, what graphic reality does to a video game, you have to look at the different levels of graphic reality capable from one machine to another. So when people want to talk about realistic violence, realistic violence on my PlayStation 4 looks very, very different than realistic violence when I play on my iPhone. Both of them still invoke realism, but that realism is bounded by hardware capability. Mm -hmm. Now, would you say like things like mobile are beginning to challenge that symbiotic relationship between hardware and software. So the fact that more and more games are now being played on mobile platforms uh, such that you don't have to necessarily make an extra investment in hardware, is that changing the industry, do you think? Oh, I mean, mobile games have had an amazing effect on the industry in a number of ways. And this was really one of the challenges in completing the book is that as I was coming to the close of it, mobile games are really coming to the fore. And that fundamentally alters a whole range of things about the industry. So six years ago, we wouldn't have needed to talk about Apple as a serious player in the games industry. But now the App Store has become one of the primary places where people go to to get games. And Apple's rules on what can go into the App Store and Apple's pricing about how games are sold in the App Store fundamentally changes the way game designers have to design games for mobile. That's also meant that if you are a AAA designer, by AAA I mean somebody who's designing a blockbuster game, so something like Halo or Call of Duty or Destiny, you've had to factor in mobile at some point into your strategy. So it's increasingly likely that if you're designing one of those big AAA console games, that as part of your release process, in fact as part of your promotional strategy, you've actually had to release something to the App Store, some sort of smaller functional game. It doesn't necessarily have to play the same way, but it has to hint at what the other game does. This has also made the industry restructure itself. So one of the things that's happened is, and let me go back to the idea of information labor, 
mobile gaming has become the resume builder for a lot of incoming game designers. So if you want to go into the games industry, what many people will tell you is that you need to come in with an example of a game you've designed. And it doesn't have to be Call of Duty, but it needs to show that you understand something about gameplay and what you understand about programming. And mobile is the place you can go go for that. Um, the economics of it are radically different. And this is something that we're going to see the industry struggle with and I think adapt around over the next couple of years is that what more affordable gaming and distribution has done is it's actually reshaped who the major players were. When I started writing the book, there were really kind of four or five major players in the industry, Sony, Nintendo, Microsoft, Electronic Arts. As the book was closing, those guys were still all major. Activision had moved, have moved into that as well. But again, we had to start thinking about Apple and Google. And we had to start thinking about Valve's product, Steam, as serious competitors. Uh, the industry is still heavily concentrated, and depending on which sector we're talking about, is probably still dominated by three or four players at most. But it's fractured the industry in some ways. So there are actually kind of two, two parallel industries happening. The AAA console PC gaming market on one hand, and the mobile gaming market on the other. Right, and I'm even thinking of Valve as, you know, with the Steam platform, it's a platform, so it kind of acts like a, hard, acts like a hardware console in a way, right? But yet at the same time, it's able to be played across different hardware platforms, whether you're on Mac, PC, or even Linux, you can do Steam gaming. Exactly. Um, and that was a revelation as a Linux user, once Steam was released on Linux, it was a huge, huge event for Linux users, major. And you've, you've actually seen in, in both of those areas that hardware manufacturers from places that weren't traditionally game production have tried to address and, in fact, have tried to move into the hardware market. So one of the things that Valve was working on was trying to create sort of Steam-enabled game-playing machines, so essentially sort of like their own version of branded, I'm going to say personal computers, but that's probably not quite the right metaphor. Mm -hmm but they were trying to move into the production of very specific hardware, and they're still experimenting with that. Um, the same thing has happened with Google, so that Google has developed and has been experimenting with its own sort of Google Play machine where you'd be able to play Android-based games and plug them into your, plug directly into your TV or your console. Hmm. That's almost like a further technological convergence in a way between those two sides of the industry. It is, and it's, it's really interesting to see. It's going to be really interesting to see what that does to the, to the kind of mainstream, typical games industry, um, how they respond to something like, I think, either Google or Apple, who are monolithic companies, and what happens when they force themselves into games. I think it's going to be seismic. Mm -hmm. Randy, I want to take a step back for a second and talk a little bit about the process of doing industry-related research. Right, kind of like a meta question here. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your methodology and your thoughts on conducting uh, media or cultural industry research in general. What would you say are some of the strategies you use to gather uh, your data about uh, the video game industries? Were there like particular challenges that uh, or roadblocks that you encountered, for example, along the way? And if so, how did you overcome those? We could have an entirely separate podcast on this one. Right. <laughs> um, 
I mean, one of the biggest challenges of, of this project for me, and this project began as my dissertation back at the University of Oregon, which I, I completed in 2005. Um, the book itself published in 20, 2014. So this really was probably about a, a little more than a decade's worth of, of research coming in. There were a couple of big problems. I and mean, one is that the nature of any media industry is fast changing. So one of the things that happened to me is that anytime there was an editorial change, anytime I would send a draft into my editor and they would ask for some changes, it meant that I had to go back and look, had the industry reshaped itself? And this has always been the case for video games. We talked earlier in the podcast about that kind of four-year period and how quickly these these things I was calling epics are actually very, very small time periods. So in some cases, really a space of five or six years accounts for one ga- one of the epics in that first chapter. The video game is the game industry is fast, fast, fast moving. That meant any time there was a change, you had to go back and try and adjust numbers and try try to see was this company still doing something. We've had major game game companies that have gone under. We've had major game companies that in the space of one sort of console generation have entirely left the console market. So when I started writing, Sega was still a console maker and they were in the process of deciding, did they want to continue to be? And so I think in about the time that I initially proposed this to about the time that I handed in my first draft to my dissertation committee, Sega had left the hardware industry and had decided to focus entirely on uh, producing software. The other big challenge, and I think this is this holds true for any media industry, is that the industries themselves maintain a lot of proprietary control of their information. So I relied on a range of sources. I did a lot of, of research drawing on their documents themselves, so annual reports, shareholder statements, press releases, those things are all really useful, but they all also function as public relations. So you have to take them with a grain of salt that anything that they publish in there, they're designing to try and put their best face forward, either to shareholders, to the market in general, to journalists. And this has been really problematic for the games industry, probably like the film industry, that so much of what they put out is designed to show them in the best light. Over the, t- the period of research, there have been increasing numbers of places that have actually have followed video games. Uh, one of the first things I did in writing the dissertation was I went to the old Reader's Guide of Periodical Literature. Um, that's something that probably only those of us over the age of 35 have ever even heard of. Uh, <laughs> My students readers- have never heard of it, so yeah. It's, it's awful. Is it? The Reader's Guide of Periodical Literature is this, this great resource in the library. Let me plug, plug the library for a minute. That essentially... You can go through and you can look up every reference to a publication of a particular keyword. So I went and looked up everything I could find for video games, for computer games. And essentially, in that kind of early historical period that I document in the first chapter, tried to find every, everything the Reader's Guide said that had any relationship to video games or computer games and went to look and see if it had any relevance whatsoever. And a lot of it didn't. Every now and then you'd find one thing that did. So you would find some small article from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or uh, Toy and Gaming Quarterly or whatever small little industry publication, and they would reference video games as this fad phenomenon. There'd be a quick aside that you would document. There was a lot, a lot, a lot of document research. And that really, I think, was the, the primary source. The thing that was probably most problematic for me, and this is one of the things that has changed even between his 
changed between both the dissertation in the book and between the book and current projects is that the, the games industry, because it is an information industry, has some other problems that are a little more unique. Um, so I've made the comparison a couple of times to video games and film. One of the ways that the games industry is different is that unlike film, there is virtually no unionization in the games industry. Um, what that means for games workers is kind of twofold. One, they don't have outside protection, uh, but it also means that their, their labor happens in a very different way. One of the things that's really important to understand about the games industry from a labor standpoint is that they, for the most part, work contract to contract until you're able to land in a big studio. During the, the writing of both the dissertation and the book, what that meant is I was trying to find people to interview about the industry, and there was a tremendous amount of hesitancy to be interviewed because they were afraid if they said something negative about a place that they worked, when that contract ended, when they finished that one game and they were looking for a new contract, word might get out. And it would not only make it harder for them to get a job, but because game designers tend to work in fairly stable teams, it might mean that in addition to making it harder for them to get a job, it might make it harder for their team of 6, 8, 12, 24 people to land another contract. So probably the biggest frustration for me in doing the dissertation and then trying to transform it into the book was that almost nobody wanted to talk to me. And I think I, I think in the, the book, I think I finally came up with four or five interviews. And those were all people who were either in the industry so long that they felt untouchable. So there was somebody who I interviewed who had been in the industry for about 20 years at that point. He felt like he was safe, really safe in his job and could kind of say what he wanted. And there were people I interviewed who were basically at the point where they knew they were leaving the industry and they were ready to go. And that plays out in a couple of other ways. So one of the things that's happened for us in terms of research is when it comes to discovering what it's like to work in the industry up until very recently, the only way we've known about that actually has been through people around them writing about what it's like to work in the games industry. So the big scandal of EA spouse in the mid part of the 20th, the early two thousands, um, similar things happened with red dead redemption, where it was people who lived with the game worker talking about what their experience was rather than the actual worker in the games industry. And those were the two biggest challenges to me that trying to get people to talk about this and it, and it persists today. It's actually something we're running into with the current project I'm on that trying to get people to say anything about the games industry is inherently problematic because of the way the work itself is structured. And I think I, as someone who also does media industry research and talking with other people who do the same type of research that I think is a is a concern of scholars across the board, no matter what industry you're talking about, whether it's film or television or radio or any other type of media, there is this kind of awareness, maybe on the behalf of people who work in those industries, that their labor is incredibly precarious, more precarious than it ever has been. And there's also a greater awareness about how that industry appears to outsiders such that there's even more hesitancy in management, if you will, PR-style management of uh, anything about that industry that goes to the outside, such that when you look back to, I don't know if you agree with this, but when you look back to some of the classics of media industry research um, from the mid-20th century, right, uh, something like The TV Producer or even Todd Gitlin's book about uh, primetime television, right, 
it's almost it's hard to imagine that those types that type of access the scholars could get that type of access today in today's environment do, do you think that's true i do i mean i one of the things that i think has happened and this ties into the general state of the academy as well is that one of the other things that has become problematic for us is that oftentimes working in departments of, of communications and media studies, we also have the problem of trying to seek those folks out for funding. Um, and this, I think, actually is sometimes one of the challenges that folks who are really em- emphasize less political, economic, and more creative industries versions of this run into, that because they're trying to essentially establish career paths into the industry, oftentimes for internships or potentially for funding for the department as as state funding has pulled away from universities that becomes predicated on saying the right things that even research itself sometimes feels like it carries with it this tinge of if you don't say nice things about me i'm going to cut off access to you um Mm -hmm. it's it really is a challenge and i think the the tendency of media industries to move towards this more information labor model the contract to contract type of labor only makes that more problematic. So if we think about early media industries and workplace studies that happened in, say, fields of journalism, where somebody would go in and watch the way gatekeeping happened, I don't think that type of study is possible today, and I don't think it would be allowed. And in part, it's because the nature of labor has changed. So if you're a writer now, much like video game workers work contract to contract, one of the things that happens as writers, you're more likely to be freelance. We're going to hire you for one story or for one series of stories. And when those stories are done, you're going to go find another job. You've never had an office with us. You may never have actually been in the room with us. You may have done everything over email. How do you, how do you study that the way those classic studies were done? I think this is it's one of the things we want to be careful of both as industry researchers and we want to be really aware of as, as critical researchers that because the nature of work has changed, we have to, there are some really big challenges out there. And this is one of the things that I talk to my students about when they say they want to go into the games industry is to, to recognize that when you're working contract to contract, that's great for some things. I mean, it means you're more flexible. You can move around the country. Maybe you can telecommute. But oftentimes it means you've given up other things. You may not have health insurance. You may not have any kind of retirement benefits. And you may not have a job in six months when your product ships. If you haven't had, if you don't have someone who's worked ahead, you may be out of work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the reality of information labor, right? That's that's a, exactly what I wanted to get to when I when I first started to propose this was trying to think about what the problems were. Mm-hmm. Randy, you have a great chapter in there about um, cross industry licensing, right? Mm-hmm. What can we say about the content of video games and have we seen some real... I mean, video games used to have these very simple concepts, right? Uh, simple but effective. They were kind of addictive because they were so simple. But particularly with these console-type games today, and even computer games, and to some extent mobile, right? Um, we're really launching into games that connect in some way uh, across media industries. What can you say about some of the trends there? We've seen some some really interesting reversals of trends. So there's a figure that people quote a lot of times, and it, it's a little misleading that one of the things that makes the games industry worth studying is that it, it now, or at least at one point, made more money than the Hollywood film industry. 
that's a little misleading. It's, it's a useful quote. It's misleading in that what that actually compares is how much video games sold versus how much Hollywood made at the box office. Mm. That figure doesn't, in fact, actually address what Hollywood made in terms of DVD sales, in terms of licensing, in terms of merchandising, of global exports, of all of the ways that Hollywood has figured out how to synergize its product. But it's a really telling example because at the t- moment that happens, we actually see the relationship between video games and other media industries start to change. So up until that moment where video games start to take off, the relationship between video games and Hollywood, for example, is that Hollywood has a movie it wants to promote and they license their content to somebody in the video games industry who makes a video game that mirrors the story of the film and they sell it and it becomes an ancillary stream for the Hollywood industry. We've actually moved to the point now where video games actually dictate content back to the film. So we have films increasingly that are made based on video games. So mm-hmm. the Laura Croft Tomb Raider movies, Resident Evil, there's a whole, a whole range of them. We also see that one of the things that's happened is that the rise of game programming has begun to influence and in fact has begun to serve as a sort of funnel into other industries. So in the mid-2000s, the, the mid electronic arts creates a studio in Los Angeles with the hope of trying to foster relationships between their programmers and filmmakers that in addition to being able to fit, to license content across, they might actually be able to do similar labor. Um, the studio doesn't do very well ultimately, but you can see that they're starting to think about it that way. The games industry though has always had really big ties to another, a number of other media and cultural industries. So the sports industry has actually historically been probably the best selling sort of subgenre of games out there. So Madden, NFL, NHL, hockey, NBA, all of those things are actually licensed. I think, you know, uh, so- FIFA soccer, uh, all of those things are huge revenue makers. And as the industry has started to figure out different ways to make money off of that, not only have the games changed, but actually the way that we talk about those things changed. So if you think about what early Madden football looked like versus what modern versions look like, Early Madden looked like playing the video game, or looked like looked like watching the game on screen, and that was the the full functionality. More recent video games actually do things like allow you to do control roster management. They start to look like fantasy football leagues, and you actually start have started to see media coverage tweak that way along in the same in the same sort of axes. So one of the things that happens now, if you watch ESPN is that they increasingly will tell you, here are the players and here are their rankings. And in fact, we've, we've seen ESPN move so far as to begin to cover game-playing tournaments. So we started to see this, this change in their relationship between industries. That doesn't happen with all media industries, though. So there's not a... Actually, video games and television haven't really figured out how to work with each other very well. There's a very few games that have been made. There's a game based on the, the series Lost. There's casual games based on things like Wheel of Fortune. But for some reason, those things haven't transitioned very well. Um, to me, it always is a little bit surprising because it seems like that kind of episodic format would work really nicely with video games. It would actually be a really logical tie-in. But we don't see very many successful examples of it. We also don't see very many great examples of, of tie-ins between the games industry and publishing. There's a very big sector of publishing about games, so how-to guides and magazines, but they function in parallel rather than really kind of interrelating, although there's 
I think we alluded to this earlier, there has been this, this tendency for people reviewing video games to be a little, maybe a little too close to the industry that their, their praise of games tends to be a little bit high because of the way that the industry is able to control access. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can probably see the same thing in the film industry and in the television industry, but maybe even more in the film industry, right? Where very powerful bloggers can get early access to sets and things like that right. and really talk up the, talk up the movie whether it's the Lord of the Rings or the new Star Wars movies that are coming out, right? Right. That, uh, certain certain players get uh, privileged access early in order in exchange for their, uh, let's say, promotional labor. Their free promotional labor, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think you know one of the things I think has happened with the, the games industry is that you know recognize that the games industry, unlike Hollywood and some of the other industries we're talking about, really has only been around for. Uh, maybe almost 40 years now, that in some ways that press side of things is still in its infancy. So you actually can make comparisons to the way that press covered stars in the 1940s to the way that the video games industry covers games right now. And there's some, I think, pretty pretty close similarities. Part of that, too, has to do with the fact that games, in spite of their popularity, and we know now that really probably a, a majority of Americans at some point play a video game each month, um, they're still oftentimes treated as a, a niche product and as a, a sort of not quite a fad anymore, but as something that is still problematic. You know, so think about any time that there is a moment of violence in the U.S., one of the things that we go to look at is to see was that person playing violent video games. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we, you know, we don't go and look to see when did they go see the most recent action movie at the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think also kind of limits the limits some of the press coverage of it. The games press is very tied to the industry because the games press is not mainstream. It's the games press is only for game players. Like if you pick up a local newspaper, it's not likely that you're going to read a, a review of a video game, but you're almost certainly going to be able to find a review of a film that came out this weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's starting to change. And as that changes, I think we'll see actually the, the relationship between the press and the games industry change. Mm-hmm. Randy, can you say a little bit about what you're looking forward from the book, what you're look, working on for your next project? Where, where are you going from here? The great thing about the book for me is that it, it really served as a, a kind of tent pole for other things that I wanted to work on. So I've got a, some chapters that were in other manuscripts that did other things. I had a chapter that came out that focused on trying to make sense of the hardware production cycle. Um, I had a chapter that came out that, that focused on the relationship specifically between Hollywood and the games industry that's it's now a little outdated. But that the book serves as a centerpiece for it. Let me, let me jump into some other things. So I, I have been working on, and I think this is going into press very shortly, a chapter looking at the, the 38 Studios and Creative Industries Policy. 38 Studios was the studio in Rhode Island. Uh, was founded by Kurt Schilling. It actually was originally in Massachusetts and was lured to Rhode Island with these enormous tax incentives. And within just a couple of years, the studio collapsed. And that was a huge. Back. That was a huge scandal. Oh, it was tremendous. And and um, in fact, you know, depending on who you ask, people say that 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 the failure of that studio actually influenced who became the next governor of Rhode Island after it happened. That it was that important. Uh, it cost the state millions of dollars. It was a really interesting example of, of how creative industries policies works in the U.S. Uh, 
typically when we talk about creative industries policy, we, it, the best examples happen in the UK and in Australia. In the US, we've tried to import that notion of creative industries policy of, of government funding to create job growth in particular sectors. This is what Rhode Island was trying to do with 38 Studios. But in their process, they really didn't have much understanding of what the game industry did or how it functioned or the realities of game production. And so if you start to look through the documents, what you see is that they were promised some things that were really quite quite amazing and, and un, completely unbelievable promises that really couldn't be kept. So 38 Studios at that point was working on one game. I believe they promised the, promised the state of Rhode Island that they would produce a best-selling AAA game every two years. Um, that's something that major studios can do. It's really difficult for a, a new sort of up-and-coming studio to do. They basically made this statement they were going to jump from being a game producer to becoming a, a sort of major distribution label within a couple of years. They were going to, I think, double the number of employees they were had within a couple of years. They were really predicting astronomical growth. And the state of Rhode Island, because they didn't understand the industry, went, that sounds great. Come and join us. We would love that. Have millions. Have a little more. Um, so I had that chapter coming out. That's in a, a book edited by uh, Jennifer DeWinter and Steve. I'm forgetting his name now. Um, oh, I knew this was going to happen. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a book on video games policy coming out from Rutledge. Uh, I think it's due out later this year. And then the major project that I'm working on has been to try and actually get some interviews with people in the game industry just to get them to tell us what their jobs are like. And this is a project I've been working on with Ken McAllister and Judd Regeal, um, a couple of other great game scholars worth looking at. Um, and this is we. This has been a sort of an ongoing project. We've got a, a book under contract with Rutledge, and we're running into some of the same problems. In this case, we we've got it. I think we, we I think we promised twenty interviews. We've got sixteen of them. But what's happened is that after we've written the interviews up, people have taken them to their legal departments, and things have been redacted, and people have had to pull the interviews. All because of the the non compete clauses, the do not disclose the non disclosure agreements, um, and that nature of information contractual labor. We're still running into these problems, um, but I'm hoping that that finishes up fairly shortly. And then I'm working on some things that are a, a little more focused on political economy. Um, they're kind of building on this. So yeah, I've been talking about um, questions of distribution in the digital age and what that means is one of the, the papers I'm really excited about. Uh, I just presented on that at IMCR, trying to think about not just how digital distribution and digital scarcity become really important, but how they how the role of the consumer fits into that. So the idea being that in the digital age, if you control how something is distrib distributed, you can actually limit the market and that becomes a really valid business strategy and a really problematic political economic crisis. Um, but in the digital age as well, we know that the consumer, that the audience member has a really big role in this. Um, so if you know, you guys listen to this podcast, if you do your good digital labor job and spread this virally, right? Your workers and please tell your friends, right? Um, in the digital age though, right? That make, that makes you not just a consumer, but a member of the audience and a member of the production team, right? You, you're, you're part of our distribution network. So I'm trying to think through what that means. If we can actually control scarcity, scarcity somehow, 
um, what the sort of political economic ramifications are. And I've been talking with a couple of folks from IAMCR about the question of methodology. So I was really glad that you asked that, that trying to think about what it means to do research from a political economic standpoint, what the challenges are, and what are some of the methods that we can bring to bear. So, you know, when I, when I studied political economy as a grad student, we talked about institutional analysis and we did document analysis and we looked at industries. Increasingly, it occurs to me, and, and this may have to do with the cultural turn, that we also need to look at the microeconomic when we talk about creative industries policy. When I look at 38 studios, I don't just want to look at what, it, what that effect was to the state of Rhode Island or what the effect was to national games policy. It would also be really interesting to know what the policy looked like from somebody working for 38 studios at the time, uh, mm-hmm. that what it means to be an information laborer is not something we often get to. And so that's probably the last big project at the moment, trying to think about what microeconomic methodologies look like for political economy. Sounds fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to checking up on all of that. Uh, Randy, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Uh, My guest has been Randy Nichols. He's Associate Professor of English and Media Studies at Bentley University, which is in Waltham, Massachusetts. Uh, I've been your host, John Sullivan, from Muhlenberg College here in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And on behalf of my co-host, Jeff Pooley, I want to say thanks for listening. Keep tuned in to the New Books Network media and communication channel for more great interviews and podcasts coming your way very soon. But for now, let me say so long. 